Hello, and welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective teaching of the healthcare providers of tomorrow. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. Today, we will continue our conversation with Dr. Amy Cowan on the challenging topic of racism and discrimination in medical education. Please listen to part one if you haven't already. outside of your clinical realm, there's some larger scale opportunities that you have created, especially for you know non-majority trainees. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about how those ideas came to be? Sure. Um, and it's not on my own. Not, not, I never wanted to say it was all me because it certainly isn't. Um, it, I feel like it takes this whole community. One of the things I got to get involved with was last year, during Ramadan, which is the month of fasting for Muslims around the world, a friend of mine, Dory Knight, and I sort of joined forces and we decided to host an iftar, which is essentially the, the evening dinner or the meal um, when, when you break your fast. And so we, we had this iftar um, at my ho- in my home. And I have a, an apartment and it's not large. And there was probably maybe 12 or 14 of us. And it was just so much fun, you know? People that many of them I, I didn't know, they were either medical students or trainees in our program. And they showed up and shared story. And, you know, they came from different parts of the U.S. and the world. And it was just really, um, it was really fun um, just to, to support and to, and to connect and to, um, to get to know people that don't have, they don't look just like me and they don't have the same um, religious experience that I grew up with. And what was the response of those involved? Were they surprised that you had created such an opportunity? What was the feedback that you got after that? Absolutely. So, you know, they, the fast doesn't start until the sun sets. And so we had everything ready. We were ready to go. And the sun had set and nobody came. And I remember telling Dory, I don't think they're coming. I think that they think that like, like, why would two white ladies have an iftar, right? Like, we don't even know. And like, we don't, we don't even know how to cook. Like, did we even do it right? Like, my mind just sort of went this like spinning. Sure. And then, you know, 10 minutes went by after sunset, 15 minutes. And I was like, this is it. Let's just, let's just bag it. And she was like, no, just be patient. They're coming. And sure enough, boom, boom, boom. All this like, you know, knocking on the door. And here came these people that were so thirsty and hungry. and. Um, and they were also just so curious, like, who are these ladies that are doing this? Right. Like, aren't you supposed to be Christian? And they were so, there was so much gratitude, um, shown, like, you know, shown to us and then word got out and it sort of became this, like, well, this is a tradition now, right? Like you you got, you're going to do it next year. Hmm. And we, we had two iftars on the, on the calendar for this year. And unfortunately, with COVID-19, it's just not, um, right. we just couldn't figure out a way to do it, to, to do it safely. So we, we haven't done it this year. Other things that I've gotten involved with, Rena Tam, Anik Patel, and Katie Graddick and I have, have kind of joined forces and have gotten really interested in how can we have um, like dinner parties over conversation around diversity, whether that be racial or ethnic or um, how you identify sexually, talking about what does it mean to be to be different and those those dinner parties have been just so um, 
oh, they've just been so like, they just fill my cup. Mm -hmm. I love, I love attending. Cause I, like, I got to meet you at one. Right. Um, I've, I, I just, I always just walk away like, wow, I never thought of it that way. That's such a different perspective. It's so fresh. I want to practice that, or I want to be better. Now surprised by how quickly we created this supportive, you know, vulnerable space where, you know, I, I knew a few of the individuals who were at the dinner, certainly not very well, being that I'm a little bit more new to the institution, but mm-hmm. it just felt like this community where you could say how you felt and, you know, the story after story, everybody opened up a little bit more. And now yeah. when I see those individuals at work, I feel like... I have somebody I can connect to who I can confide in. And it just was really beautiful. Like how quickly um, Mm -hmm. that space, that vulnerable space was created. Yeah. And I think it goes back to, again, storytelling. When we, when we share story, we're, I just think we're like, that's just our human nature. Like Mm -hmm. we love to be read to, we love to hear story. That's how we, I don't know. I think that's how we certainly connect. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think about faculty development. Is there anything that you're doing within your department to help, you know, faculty increase awareness and have more sensitive practices? And if not, are there things that you think might be helpful? Sure. I mean, after I wrote the article for JAM or the, the little viewpoint piece for JAMA, um, I was invited to to do a lot of speaking. And for probably a year I did that. I even traveled out of state to to do little workshops, essentially just about how how to empower people to to call out bad behavior. And that that really sort of taught me a lot in regards to faculty because it's so interesting to me, you know, even even in an attending role, how powerless so many people feel, which I was just really surprised by, you know, like when I, when I graduated from medical school and I don't think I'm unique, but when I walked across that stage and and accepted my, my MD, I felt like I became a physician leader and, and that I felt this weight of responsibility to the profession to really measure up. Um, and to, to be this clinician for the patients that I would, I would take care of one day. And I, I didn't need to wait until I was, you know, a resident or, or faculty or tenured or any of that professorship. And so I, th- I think we do a disservice to our trainees if we don't encourage that physician leadership sort of right away. Mm-hmm. And empower them. Because I think empower them, yeah, so that they're actually practicing um, when they see injustice to say something, to do something. All of this waiting, it's like, what are we waiting for? Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it, it's the same stuff. It just happens to be 2020. But, you know, it's, it's not going to go away on its own. I think people often look to the physician as the leader of the team. And mm-hmm. even though teams are comprised of such a variety of, of leaders, but if the physician who's leading the team or leading rounds doesn't speak up or doesn't say something or doesn't create that inclusive space, then who will? Like who on the team will then feel empowered to do so? So I just really applaud that you're able to role model that for your trainees. And there's such a hierarchy in medicine. And and I and I get that. And that's that's not going away. I'm not saying it should. I'm just saying that, you know, because of that hierarchy and because we haven't nurtured 
um, that our trainees and our students are going to become physician leaders, they don't get a chance to practice. Mm-hmm. And so then they feel that they can't. And then once they're, you know, out in the world as attending, it's like, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm only a, a lecturer or an assistant professor. Um, you know, once I'm, and then they, it's sort of like, when I'm this, then I will be. And it's like, well, no, that's not how it works. Like yeah. if you don't practice, you're not going to become anything. I feel that. I feel that. I, you know, I often think, okay, once I stop looking like I'm in my twenties, then maybe I'll have some authority. <laughs> uh, even though if you look very closely, there are a handful of white hairs in, in my head. So um, <laughs> oh, that's great. You always feel junior. I feel, you know, like the most, the newest, the most junior member of my team. Like when, when will I feel not like the imposter and it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you, it's this work, right? It's like, it's this practice of acknowledging like, oh yeah, I'm feeling kind of small Mm -hmm. and, and thank you for sharing. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, that gets to sit in the back seat now, those thoughts of imposterism, and I get to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm acknowledging that, yes, that, you know, this is uncomfortable, this is vulnerable, this feels risky, and yet here I am. I'm going to keep doing what I, what my morals, you know, sort of tell me is right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to bring up uh, one of your teaching awards. So in 2018, you received the Teacher of the Year Award at the VA Medical Center. So congratulations on that. Thanks. And I also, you know, you talked about some of the day-to-day things that set you apart, but what other things do you think really set you apart as an educator? I mean, you were recognized as, as, you know, one of the best teachers in the institution. So what is it that makes Mm -hmm. you different? I think something that I really value, um, one of the core values that I hold dear is willingness. And so can I also practice that willingness? Can I be willing Um, can I be willing to fail more than I succeed, right? Can I be willing to be in the trenches and, and, you know, working with a team and trying to connect with this team and figuring out like, oh, this is a really kind of rambunctious team. This is what they need where those sorts of things might not work the next week I'm on service with a team that is more quiet or calm or maybe a little more reflective. So kind of trying to figure out and, and to do it on the fly, I think that's what makes, makes me different. I'm maybe a bit unique is that I'm just willing to, to kind of keep putting myself out there. And, and, and I definitely have, have some disasters. I think there's this tendency to teach in the way that we like to be taught or in the way that we're good at or the way that we're comfortable. Yes. But it's really yes. hard to try to figure out you know, how to teach best for your learners and not just for what makes you feel comfortable. Right. Which can feel, again, um, it's a little bit distressing, right? Because, you know, I'm trying something new and I'm not expert at it. And yet I'm trying to, to reach these learners. And so I think for me, it's sort of like just even saying that to them, like, look, I'm trying this on too. <laughs> this is uncomfortable for me too. I had to look this up or I had to learn this last night or, but then also like by being, and it's kind of dorky, but like, I get really excited about it. Mm-hmm. I get excited about learning things. And, and part of that excitement can be contagious for the rest of my team. Um, and, and maybe even um, motivate them or inspire them to, to want to look things up too. Mm-hmm. 
So Dr. Cohen, I recently listened to your interview on the Bundle of Hers podcast and shout out to the Bundle of Hers. They're a group of uh, female medical students at the University of Utah that just have a really fascinating podcast about their lived experiences. And your episode highlighted, you know, white allyship. And that's not really a concept that I had heard of before. Could you explain to our listeners what that means to you? Sure. Um, So allyship, how I kind of think of it is how much skin do I have in the game as a white person with people of color? In other words, how, how much am I willing to break from white solidarity to support um, people who are, who are in a struggle that I will never be in, I will never experience because just based on the color of my skin, society treats me very differently, right? Like I'm not, I'm not profiled. I'm not targeted. My body isn't slammed up against a wall and stopped and frisked. No one is lynching me, right? Like I'm very, I'm very well protected based on how, how society is set up. And so allyship is, is sort of, that's sort of how I think of it. I think the difference though, is that I think a lot of white people will sort of self-identify like, oh, I'm an ally or I'm woke Mm. or I'm very aware. And it's like, you know, you actually don't get to decide if you're woke or if you're an ally or if you're anti-racist, right? Like that is not, that is not up to us to decide. That is people of color get to decide that about us. Yeah. I don't know if that, yeah, that definitely helps. Um, that kind of helps. And, and so for physicians who are in the ethnic majority, for white physicians, how can they become an ally, not just in thought, but in their actions? I think it starts with um, having a relationship with ourselves around our own white identity. I, I have to be able to understand what it means to be white first before I can understand what it means not to be white. And there is very long, dark history of white superiority and white supremacy. And I think for me personally, I've had to really personalize that history and understand how I benefit from systemic racism and how I perpetuate it. And so I would encourage your listeners to, you know, self-reflect and and look critically at how, how not are you or aren't you a racist, but how might you benefit from this system and how might you contribute to it? Um, because once you start doing that, then I think you start choosing differently, or at least my hope would be that with self-reflection and analytical thinking, you start, you start choosing differently. Yeah, I think it starts with awareness of your own background, your own privilege, your own experience before you can come into yeah. the space and experience of others. Yeah. And it's really... Um, it's interesting when I even talk about white privilege with my mostly white learners um, in that a lot of times for most of them, this is the first time and as adults that they've ever had their racial identity challenged. Hmm. And, and it, it can be, it can be distressing for some, it can be uncomfortable for others um, because I'm challenging the status quo, right? The status quo is that, well, white is normal. It's invisible. It's all of those things, at least if you're white. And now, you know, I'm, I'm actually like kind of pushing them to, to think of it in a different way. And so thinking about all of your experiences and kind of this awakened passion that you have, 
Do you think it kind of informs this sort of career that you'd like to have? You know, at the end of your career, how might you measure measure success? I think oh, that's such a like. What's my legacy? Essentially, is what you're asking, right? Like, what would you hope to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think I've, I think my career has been something that's had multiple swerves, and I, you know, for a long time, I really regretted those swerves, thinking, gosh, like if I had just, if I had a few extra years of medicine, then I'd be so much better of a doctor, and I'd be smarter. And if I hadn't traveled, you know, after high school, I I could have gotten started sooner, and and it's like, yeah, but all of that makes me who I am. Mm-hmm. And it and it gives like this richness to my life. And I feel like I could I could talk to anyone. Um and so I think the swerves are, are something that I've learned to value. And at the end of my career, I hope I hope I've made people feel tall. I hope that I've encouraged and inspired them to think differently. Um, because all the medical stuff you can look up. And it's going to change in six months anyway. But but how did we treat each other, right? Like how did we how did we comfort each other? Was there compassion? And so that's what I hope that that I instill in these doctors in training and these students that that they go out and that they practice differently. Yeah, you definitely have made me think about how I can change my teaching practice, and I love the idea of. You know, just starting with a question and starting to get to know learners on a personal level before tackling the medicine and just really showing that, you know, you value them as human beings and, you know, mm-hmm. create that positive learning environment so that people feel safe and comfortable to learn in your presence. Mm-hmm. I have one last question for you. Um, I ask this of every guest. So what teaching pearl or piece of advice would you like to leave us with today? Oh my gosh, there's so many things. <laughs> I think that don't wait, you know, don't, don't sit on your hands for one more minute. Like just all of this waiting to be, you know, perfect and have it all figured out and blah, blah, blah. Just start, you know, whatever that means to you, um, start and, and, and it's okay to, to fail. Um, keep showing up, you know, like my, my passion is, is really, um, you know, looking at identity. And so I would, I would highly encourage, especially your white listeners to, to explore what does it mean to be white? And there's great podcasts and books and things, but, um, yeah, whatever it is, don't wait because life is really short and you're missing out on all of this rich, rich meaning and, and connection. That is such a beautiful piece of advice to leave us with today. So Dr. Cohen, thank you for taking the time to share your story and for talking to me in this, you know, vulnerable, socially distanced space. Um, we've yeah. had some, some difficult conversations <laughs> and I just appreciate your willingness to, you know, engage in this topic and I hope to have you back in the future to keep learning about uh, your teaching practices. Thanks. And I'm sure they'll be completely different. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of it. <laughs> Exactly. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My hope is to create a safe space where we can discuss even the most challenging topics in medical education. Please let me know what you thought of today's episode at teaching and medicine podcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at teaching in med. Thank you for listening.